0: Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick.
1: And I'm Julia.
0: And today we're talking about Minutes 37 and 38, which begin with Smokers charging toward the Atoll and end with the Smokers' Hellfire Gunboat decimating the Atoll's defenses. This is the beginning of the attack on the Atoll, an action sequence that will last all the way through to episode 26 of this podcast.
1: Seriously? That's long? Oh, my goodness. We are
0: looking at roughly seven episodes because in episode 26, it's only the first quarter to half okay. of the clip. But yes, so... it's a long action sequence. There's a lot of depth to it. There's a lot that happens.
1: Yeah, there is a lot that happens.
0: But it's also very long. <laughs>
1: It did occur to me that this isn't the first action we've seen in this movie. It's the first extended action. Mm -hmm. It's the first real action scene.
0: Yeah, it's a good 15 minute long attack.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll see how I feel about it in a couple weeks.
0: I mean, hey, we liked the climactic battle in Road Warrior. Yes, we did. Because even though it was all the same action sequence, there were bits and pieces of it. Just like the end action sequence of Beyond Thunderdome, a good action sequence has Little chapters inside of it.
1: Yes, and I agree. This one very much does. And these two minutes for today are absolutely like the opening move. Mm -hmm. A spectacular opening move.
0: Yeah, I'm sure the Smokers would have appreciated being able to get a little bit closer to the Atoll before their arrival was announced, but hey, they've got to work with what they have. We kick off this minute by seeing more of the boats that the Smokers have brought to the fight- we see more gearing up from the A-tollers, and it's almost surreal the calm before the storm that is happening, even though everybody is running around. And I say calm before the storm because I'm looking at the smoker who's riding on the ladder boat. He's sitting there with his shotgun, and he's just hanging out. Yeah. His part will come later, but right now they just got to get in position.
1: Right. There's no need to expend energy before you need to. Mm-hmm. And since the smokers are coming at it from the offensive point of view, they are prepared to stay calm in order to get into place. Yeah. The atollers have no such luxury. (laughs) Right.
0: The only bit of working up that the smokers have to work up is their bloodlust. And you've got the one smoker pirate who is standing on the front of the ladder boat and he shouts out kill and then another smoker points and he's like there because we see that the wall of the atoll has these flaps that you can open and close and it's a flurry of activity inside the atoll.
1: It is a flurry of activity and I'm going to have to assume that at least some of it is a plan. It is people scrambling to places that they are designated to be. I'm hoping that there is something in this chaos because otherwise it's just chaos. And chaos never makes a good defense.
0: But it looks like that a lot of the atollers are getting to the top of the wall because if you've got a wall, the top of it is where you repel people trying to get over it.
1: Mm -hmm. I do really, really appreciate fairly early on in the clip. We go to the top of the wall, and two of the council members Mm -hmm. are up there on the front lines.
0: The commerce elder and the pream.
1: Yeah, and the commerce elder loses his cool a little.
0: He projects strength to the people that are further away, but then when he sees the pream come up next to him, he walks back his prior statement. Yeah. like He shouts to the other people, We are safe behind this wall. And then Doubt creeps in as he leans into the pream and says, aren't we? And the expression on the pream's face does not reassure us, the viewers, that they are indeed safe behind these walls. No. We're going to find out before the end of today that these walls are not nearly as impenetrable as they would want them to be. Like paper. Yeah.
1: No matter... How these council members have shown themselves to be in the past few minutes, which has not been a stellar performance. They didn't run and hide. They don't have a secret bunker mm-hmm. when it's time to fight. They're right up there in front with everybody else. That really says a lot about them.
0: We get a lovely overhead shot oh, of my the goodness. atoll.
1: I love this shot so much. Partly, partly because the shape of the atoll Looks like the Millennium Falcon.
0: What surprises me about it is that the Trimoran is massive.
1: It really is. We have spent some time on the Trimoran, so we have a decent sense of its scale, that it is pretty big. But not so big that one person can't handle it with a little bit of adaptiveness. Mm -hmm. So that does help us to get a sense of how big the Atoll is. And it's not that big.
0: No, it's smaller than I really expected based on all the descriptions that we've had of it. And that might just be my inability to actively judge something's size based on numbers on a page.
1: Well, I think it's a production thing. We know that the Atoll is a physical set. Mm -hmm. We know that it is actually floating out in the Pacific Ocean. And that it caused them no end of headaches. And there were two of them made because the first one was destroyed. So they may not have been able to make the real life one as big as they wanted to. Mm. We have seen a couple of sketches, some ideas, some concept sketches. And it is much larger.
0: Oh, I would have loved that Atoll stuck to the side of a tanker.
1: Oh, yes. Yes.
0: That would have been amazing. So it's really
1: easy with a good, good director of photography, which they have, to make a space seem larger than it is. Mm -hmm. But overhead like this, there's nothing you can do.
0: Yeah, you can't really hide it. You
1: can't hide it. And Dean Semler, I think, really did do a good job when we're down in the atoll of making it feel larger.
0: Mm -hmm. This overhead shot does afford us a glimpse at a few more boats in the Smoker Armada, we can see off to the left of the screen a few of the ramp barges that are going to factor in to future episodes. They are getting into position while the smaller craft loop around the back of the atoll. I'm sure that they are moving in a circle around the structure, so that way they can make sure that there are no auxiliary entrances that they can sneak into.
1: Mm Mm-hmm and no escaping.
0: Mhm. They want to make sure that a section of the atoll isn't going to disconnect and float away, kind of like the Enterprise D where they can detach the engines and leave the saucer.
1: Although if that were going to happen, it should be saved for, you know, the climax of the movie and not be used so quickly.
0: Right. The Mariner, stuck in his cage, he's able to read the writing on the wall. He knows that an attack is happening, and so he shouts through the bars up at the enforcer, "Let me out, I can help fight. I'm not Completely convinced that production-wise, the shots of the Enforcer are meant to go specifically with the shots of the Mariner, but the way they cut them together, it definitely feels like you've got the Enforcer turning to hear the Mariner, but then getting distracted by something else.
1: Yeah, it's a shame. So if he had let the Mariner out and the Mariner fought on their side with his full skill set and his full effort... Do you think it would have made a difference?
0: I think it would have made a difference. Yeah. I think if the Enforcer had let the Mariner out and the Mariner helped repel the attack, that it would have been better for the Mariner. The trouble is repelling the attack. Because the Smokers have weapons that the Mariner doesn't know about yet.
1: So the end result would have been the same. Right. The Atoll would be destroyed and the Mariner probably still would have found an opportunity to escape himself. Most likely with his boat.
0: In fact, there's nothing to say that the Mariner wouldn't have ran as soon as they let him out. That he would not have helped fight. That he would have yeah. made a break for it as soon as possible.
1: I question the honorableness of the Mariner. Would he have fought with them? He
0: owes these people nothing.
1: No. In fact, he owes them vengeance. Like, they kind of deserve it. hmm So... I guess the Enforcer made the right move. He didn't even consider the Mariner's offer. Mm -hmm. Didn't even pause.
0: (laughs) Especially when there is something as bonkers as what is approaching the Atoll right now. We see this barge. It is paddle wheel driven. The paddle wheel is attached to a Mack truck. And at the very front of this barge is a gun emplacement. Now, the Atoll YouTube channel thankfully made a very comprehensive video all about this thing. It is called the Hellfire Gun Boat, and I'll put a link to the video in the Facebook group. But the gun here at the front of the barge is an M45 quad mount. It was originally meant to shoot down aircraft during the Second World War, Korean War, and Vietnam War. Nicknames for this style of gun include the Meat Chopper and the Kraut Mower. That second one, obviously, from World War II. The platform itself consists of four M2 Browning machine guns firing 50 caliber rounds, which will chew up an airplane like gum, so you can imagine what it's going to do to this scrap metal wall. Yeah. In the making of Waterworld book, there is a concept sketch of a sort of... Stand platform with two arms coming off of it, and then on each of the arms is a M134 minigun, like you see on the side of a Black Hawk helicopter. It's an interesting idea to have these big Gatling guns, but I really like this quad gun setup better. I think it looks cooler.
1: It does look cooler and it looks pretty awesome in action, which we get before the end of these minutes. So I think they did go in the right direction. And I love the hodgepodge-ness of this barge. Particularly, there is something very satisfying about the paddle wheel. Mm -hmm. It looks like an octopus with the suckers on the tentacles. Okay.
0: There you go. I was wondering where you were going with that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not quite sure how effective tires can be at moving through water. But hey, if they got it to work for this, because everything is practical...
1: Yeah, I thought a lot about this, and I didn't look it up online or anything, which I totally could have, and it would have given me some answers, but this is all from my head, because I was thinking that the tires really don't make much of a profile in the water, so there's not much paddling effect Mm -hmm. of moving something through the water, but what it does have is cupping effect. Mm -hmm. They are essentially scoops, because they're all hollow on the inside. And they're more than scoops. They're scoops with a lot of storage space for water to get caught in there and to be heavy. I'm wondering if this thing has a lot of torque, Mm. like a tugboat. It's not necessarily fast, but it's powerful.
0: One of the advantages of using tires in this drum setup is that you can go forward and reverse because the tires are round. Yep. So they will go both ways. The guy in the gunner seat, he is Chuck the Hellfire Gunner. At least I assume his name is Chuck. There is a line later on that perhaps he doesn't go by Chuck. Maybe they should call him Charles, but that's something that we can talk about in a future episode. (laughs) But he's hollering at his assistants to get the bullets loaded, which, why aren't the bullets already loaded? Yeah. They're going into battle. They've had plenty of time to do this ahead of time.
1: Right. They seem to have been on a bit of a journey. Yeah. At least several miles out, which we've discussed before how far the tanker has to be away from the atoll so that they can't see it. Mm -hmm. So I think we've talked about three to five miles, which really isn't that far.
0: No, it should be farther because of the lookout towers.
1: Yes. So they have had time to prep for battle, Mm -hmm. but nope, they're just prepping now.
0: Back inside the atoll, we catch up with the little blonde braided boy who is stumbling around, not quite sure where to go, and he runs into Helen. Actually, no, it's more true to say that Helen runs into him, and this boy is going out of his mind. He can't find his dad, and Helen grabs him by the arm and says, Your dad's probably on the wall. You need to go there, grab a weapon, and help everybody fight, because we will all die.
1: Yeah, nobody She doesn't say the die
0: part, but you know,
1: nobody is exempt from fighting. Mm-hmm. In this moment, there are an awful lot of kids running around. Like everybody. In the few moments that we watch this little blonde boy look confused, we see a lot of individuals behind him and around him, and most of them are children.
0: All right, there is one child I want to point out in particular. Yeah. After Helen has run into the braided boy, she falls down. And there is a blonde girl behind the foreground actors. And she is holding a black ball that is covered in spines. I'm pretty sure that is a tar ball because we are going to see catapults later on in this attack that are lit on fire and flung at the attackers.
1: Okay. So yeah, kids, I don't really expect a child to pick up a melee weapon and start using it. That's a tall order, but they make good runners. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: They can go get ammunition from storage and bring it up to the ramparts where it can be yeah. more useful.
1: It's an indirect way for them to be helpful and they're quick.
0: Mm-hmm. Once we're done with Helen and the Braided Boy, we have probably the most important shot of these two minutes. We come up on the front of a barge that has this giant fabric bag that's held in place by change. This is the Smoker's Fuel Barge that they have brought to refuel their vehicles, keep them running all through the attack. And up at the back of the barge underneath a fun little umbrella on a throne of sorts is none other than Dennis Hopper as the evil smoker Deacon.
1: He's such a fun bad guy. (laughs) And I can't wait to to be delighted by him.
0: He is easily my favorite part of this movie because he knows exactly what kind of movie this is and he is going to play up the Deacon in just the perfect way. I am so glad that he is officially in this film now. And the first line we hear is he reaches over and he taps one of his flag wavers on the shoulder and he says, give me the key to the city now.
1: Yeah, I love that his first line is exactly his personality of serious, like deadly serious. There's no mistaking what his intentions are, but in kind of a fun, jokey kind of way, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: (laughs) Because he's the deacon, he's the leader, he's not to be questioned, but at the same time, we're going to find in this movie that he calls everybody cousin. They're members of his family. They're all one big happy smoking family, (laughs) and his outfit is so much more extravagant than anything we've seen in this movie so far. He's got the corded pants. He's got the codpiece, but his jacket covered in medals taken from who knows where with the bright red, what do you call those parts of the jacket? Lapel? Lapels. Lapels. To say nothing of the shoulder covers that he's got on this jacket, whatever those things are called.
1: Ah, uh, oh, I know this. Epaulets? Yeah, epaulets.
0: There we go. Everything about his outfit I love. It's amazing. The Deacon is played, as I said, by Dennis Hopper. His top four on IMDb are 1969's Easy Rider, 1986's Blue Velvet, 1994's Speed, and of course this movie, Waterworld, 1995.
1: Waterworld made it into Dennis Hopper's top four.
0: Yep, because they certainly weren't going to put Super Mario Brothers on there.
1: (laughs) That's very true.
0: So Dennis Lee Hopper was born on May 17, 1936 in Dodge City, Kansas, the son of Marjorie May and James Millard Hopper. Hopper had two brothers named Marvin and David. When he was 13, Hopper and his family moved to San Diego, where his mother worked as a lifeguard instructor and his father was a post office manager having previously served in the Office of Strategic Service, which was the precursor to the Central Intelligence Agency in World War II. Hopper was voted most likely to succeed at Helix High School, where he was active in the drama club, speech, and choir. It was there that he developed an interest in acting, studying at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego and the Actors Studio in New York City. Hopper accrued 204 acting credits over his long career, beginning with some television appearances in 1954, before making his film debut in two roles alongside James Dean, who he admired immensely, both in Rebel Without a Cause in 1955 and Giant in 1956. James Dean's death in September of 1955 affected Hopper deeply, and it was shortly afterward that he got into a confrontation with veteran director Henry Hathaway, On the film From Hell to Texas in 1958, Hopper forced Hathaway to shoot more than 80 takes of a scene over several days before he acquiesced to Hathaway's direction. After filming was finally completed, Hathaway allegedly told Hopper that his career in Hollywood was finished. In a December 1994 interview on The Charlie Rose Show, Hopper credited John Wayne with saving his career, as Hopper acknowledged that because of his insolent behavior, he could not find work in Hollywood for several years. Hopper stated that because he was the son-in-law of actress Margaret Sullivan, a friend of John Wayne, Wayne hired Hopper for a role in The Sons of Katie Elder in 1965, also directed by Hathaway, which enabled Hopper to restart his film career. Hopper acted in another John Wayne film, True Grit, from 1969, and during its production he became well acquainted with John Wayne. In both of the films with Wayne, Hopper's character is killed in the presence of Wayne's character, to whom he utters his dying words. Hopper won wide acclaim as the director for his improvisational methods and innovative editing for Easy Rider in 1969. The production was plagued by creative differences and personal acrimony between Fonda and Hopper, The disillusion of Hopper's marriage to Hayward, his unwillingness to leave the editor's desk, and his accelerating abuse of drugs and alcohol. Very rocky. Hopper was able to sustain his lifestyle and a measure of celebrity by acting in numerous low-budget and European films throughout the 1970s. With Francis Ford Coppola's 1979 blockbuster Apocalypse Now, Hopper returned to prominence as a hypermanic Vietnam-era photojournalist. Stepping in for an overwhelmed director, Hopper won praise in 1980 for his directing and acting in Out of the Blue. Immediately thereafter, Hopper starred as an addled short-order cook named Cracker in the Neil Young-Dean Stockwell low-budget collaboration Human Highway. Production was reportedly often delayed by his unreliable behavior, so Hopper would check himself into rehab for his drug abuse in 1983. Hopper returned to mainstream recognition with his portrayal of the gas-huffing, obscenity-screaming villain Frank Booth in David Lynch's Blue Velvet in 1986. He won critical acclaim and several awards for this role, and in the same year received an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor for his role as an alcoholic assistant basketball coach in Hoosiers. The 1990s was a decade of hits and misses for Hopper. He starred as King Koopa in Super Mario Bros., a 1993 critical and commercial failure loosely based on the video game of the same name. Loosely... Is saying it nicely. Yeah. In 1993, he played Clifford Worley in Tony Scott's True Romance. He co-starred in the 1994 blockbuster Speed with Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. And of course, in 1995, Hopper was Deacon, the one-eyed nemesis of Kevin Costner in Waterworld. Hopper’s film and television career persisted into the new millennium with his last performance being the voice of Tony, the alpha male of the Eastern Wolf Pack in the 2010 3D computer animated film Alpha and Omega. He died before the movie was released, thus, the director dedicated the film to his memory at the beginning of the credits. Hopper died at his home in the coastal Venice district of Los Angeles. He was 74 and that was on the morning of May 29th, 2010. Over his life, he married five times and fathered four children.
1: I have to admit that while the name Dennis Hopper is a household name, I haven't really seen anything he's been in. I mean, I've seen Apocalypse Now once a very long time ago, but aside from this movie, not really anything else. Mm. So I, I couldn't even tell you why he is so famous. But... Seeing it laid out in front of me like that, it's obvious. He's been working for a really long time. He has worked both really hard and really not hard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I think the important part is that he got himself cleaned up. We all go through those rough times that are very often spurred on by loss. And I'm glad to see that he was able to get himself out of that eventually.
0: And it's not often that you find an actor that is able to be so iconic. Like Dennis Hopper in Easy Rider helped, I don't want to say invent the visual stereotype of the 1970s counterculture man, but he kind of helped invent the visual (laughs) shorthand of the 1970s counterculture man. The long shoulder length hair, the big mustache, the motorcycle, that was the look. And he got to be a part of that.
1: Okay, I googled it because I wanted to see the visual that you were thinking of, and most of the pictures are of them on bikes, either with helmets on or going fast. You couldn't really see their face, but I had to scroll down to find one, and you are absolutely right.
0: Before I went into Dennis Hopper's history, I mentioned that he has some flag waivers next to him. He has two of them, and they are doing a variation of flag semaphore communication. I don't have a whole breakdown of flag semaphore for this episode. That's just going to have to happen later on. (laughs) Suffice it to say that it is a way of communicating with flags. The important thing here is that the Hellfire gun is ready to unleash its payload on the atoll. And once the guns are primed, we get a quick shot of Chuck before he opens this thing up. And Chuck's mask...
1: Yeah, I wanted to talk about Chuck's mask as well. Yeah, let's go for it. It's the nose piece, obviously. Other than that, it's a pretty standard mask, right?
0: Yeah, it's a gas mask that they chopped the bottom off of.
1: Yeah, it is. So the nose piece.
0: Kind of pig-shaped.
1: It is. It looks like a pig's nose. And I'm not sure if this was by power of suggestion, but when he unleashes on the atoll, when they cut back to him, do you hear, like, pig squealing noises? Yes. Okay, I'm so glad you You're heard that, You're not hearing too. things
0: that is actually in there. Okay. This movie was nominated for Best Sound Editing <laughs> when Oscar time came around.
1: Yeah, there are pig squealing noises, and I did try and justify it a bit in my head that it was metal squealing, because there's an awful lot of metal things happening all right here, but... No, it's squealing. It's just pig squealing.
0: (laughs) So I think one of the reasons they included the pig aspect of it is because the smokers are using homemade bullets. All of the rounds that you see being loaded into these guns, those are all homemade. That's why they scoop up the casings after the fact. Yeah. So I'm not saying that they're not using lead But they could also just be using cast iron, which one of the intermediate products of the iron industry is called pig iron. It's also known as crude iron, and it's obtained by smelting iron ore in a blast furnace. So because he's using that lower quality of material in the guns, you know, it could be a bit of a reference to that. It could also just be an interesting visual style that they went with. I don't know exactly why. But it makes him stand out, and that's the important thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I like Very much so. I like him, too. He seems to enjoy his work and really be having a good time. There is a shot that we cut back to him having a good time. Oh, yeah. And the bottom half of his face is completely blackened by the soot from these guns. So if this used to be a gas mask, it's a shame they cut off the bottom portion of it. Right. Like, let him have the whole thing so we can have... A bit more clean face. Although, what's the bottom of a gas mask made of?
0: More rubber, more I'm rubber. sure. Because... Once you get down to the actual filter canister, that's where it opens up into the air. So it could be that they cut off the bottom of the mask because they ran out of filters and they didn't want the rubbery part of the mask to collapse in on itself.
1: And without the ability to make more rubber, they probably wanted it for something else. Yeah. But it's a shame because he gets awfully sooty.
0: Yes, he does. The bullets of the Hellfire Gun tear through the walls of the Atoll like a hot knife through butter.
1: Oh, this is rough.
0: These bullets are punching fist-sized holes in this wall, and it is a freaking massacre.
1: It almost feels, storytelling-wise, a little Jump the Shark-ish. Like they brought out their most powerful weapon first Mm. instead of ramping up to it. I know they have plenty of other powerful weapons and plenty of other strategies, but it just seems, storytelling-wise, odd to use this amazingly strong and effective weapon as the first thing that you do.
0: It's a better strategic option than it is a narrative option. For sure. In a narrative, you ramp up to the most powerful thing. In warfare strategy, if you can hit them with one thing and have that one thing work, and save yourself all sorts of trouble, then why not use it?
1: Yeah. I would expect this to be an expensive weapon to run.
0: Oh, absolutely. All of
1: these bullets, they have to be made in between each battle. It's hugely expensive, although everything is expensive in this world. Mm -hmm. Everything takes a lot of work and a lot of resources, so I'm not sure if there is a cheap option to put out front of an attack. I mean, <laughs> even the jet skis are expensive. Mm-hmm.
0: And there's really nothing for the A-tollers to do except duck and cover and try not to get shot by this thing.
1: Yeah, there's not really any defense for this.
0: Thicker walls. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Trouble with thicker walls is that they become heavier and then you got to buoy it up with more stuff, but that's all logistics anyway. One of the last things we see in this clip is the mariner ducking in his cage trying to avoid getting shot by all of the bullets splashing in the water around him. So we're going to put a pin in all of this and catch up next week where we see the battle raging on between these smokers and atollers. Both sides will unleash their secret weapons. Meanwhile, Gregor is going to scramble to try and ready some sort of escape from the violence. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
1: Waterworld was written by Peter Raider and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures.
0: Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Diaz Ire by Daniel Batista of danielbatista.com.
1: Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute.
1: And like us on Facebook by searching madmaxminute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone.
0: If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin.
1: Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 19. We'll see you next time.